Anyway, the epistle of 1 John, church family, let's go there. Chapter 3 this morning, 1 John chapter 3. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand. Charlie would be glad to share a copy of God's Word. And there's a little note page in your bulletin. Grab that as well. And I'd like to begin this morning by reading for you the words of a 30-something-year-old Christian and their personal struggle with doubt about their salvation. Listen carefully, because if this has not been your experience, it is very likely that it has been the experience of someone who is probably not sitting too far away from you. This person writes, I grew up hearing the gospel and knowing about Jesus and salvation. I professed faith in Jesus when I was a young child. As I grew older, I began to seriously wonder, what if I'm not a Christian after all? What if the prayer I prayed to receive Christ was not quite right? What if I wasn't sincere enough as I prayed it? Doubt is one thing. The fear that it produces is another, especially with salvation because the consequences of dying and not being a Christian terrified me. I had heard enough about hell to know that I didn't want to end up there. This fear led me to pray for salvation over and over and over. I walked the aisle many times for altar calls, hoping that by going forward I could prove to myself that I was a Christian. I obsessed over my doubt, and my doubt created tremendous fear. This person goes on, but you get the flavor of where they're coming from. And I would just ask, can any of us in this room relate? those to that testimony to that word yeah some of us can we can relate to that doubt and fear over our standing before God doubt and fear two tools that Satan uses with great effectiveness in the Christian community only he uses these two tools in a way that is quite opposite of what we might expect This is his cleverness. Donald Whitney in his book, How Can I Be Sure I'm a Christian, writes, The devil's diabolical strategy in general is to convince lost people that they're saved and saved people that they're lost. This ensures that the people who need to feel fear don't and the people who shouldn't feel fear do. It guarantees the unsaved stay that way and the saved are enslaved to their doubt and fear and fail to flourish as confident children of God. The tools of the enemy, doubt and fear. Now, if you have been able to travel with us from the beginning of our study of the epistle of 1 John, you know that the passion of the apostle John is to write to the, to the truly saved and assure them that they are saved. The key verse for us from the very first morning that we started our, the epistle of 1 John, the key verse that opens up the whole book is 1 John 5, 13. And you know these words well by now. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may, and what's the next word? Know that you have eternal life. This is the book in one verse. Knowledge, confidence, assurance, these are the opposite of doubt and fear and uncertainty. 
Listen now as John gives reassurance to the truly saved concerning their doubts and fears about their salvation. And for anyone who might have really been able to relate to the, to the opening testimony that I just read, maybe this section of 1 John is going to become pure gold for you. It's verses 19 to 24, the newest portion of our study of 1 John. We'll wrap up chapter 3 today with these verses. But here's how verses 19 to 24 read. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him, that is before God. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in him and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. So this is, this is where we're going to land today. These are the verses we're going to unpack together. And, and upon a first read of this particular section, th- th- this might sound a little bit confusing. It really isn't if we understand what John is, is trying to do, though. These verses represent a kind of, of summary statement of all that John has said now up to this point in his letter about those who are genuinely saved and in a relationship with God. The twist here is that he's going to appeal in this section to both hard objective evidence for our salvation assurance and then he as well will appear to more appeal to more subjective feelings that are associated with our assurance. So there's objective evidence and there's subjective feelings that come into this into this passage and therein lies the challenge for us this morning. Objective and subjective proofs of our salvation that spell death for doubt and fear and lead to certainty and assurance for us in our relationship with the Lord. Maybe I can illustrate it this way a little bit. Here at IBC, how do we know that which mom goes with which child? How do we know that here at IBC? Well, there are objective proofs and there are subjective proofs. Objectively, there is paperwork that would prove that. A certain child went with a certain mom, birth certificates, social security documents, hospital records that say so-and-so goes with so-and-so. Sometimes the physical similarities between a mom and a child are, are so strong that we know that that child belongs to that mom. They, they just objective evidence right there. And today we have the technology to prove parentage uh, all the way down to DNA strands through DNA testing. So objective, concrete, hard proofs, hard evidence, this child goes with this mom. The subjective proofs are much easier to administer and they're pretty much just as reliable. They work uh, even within, within adoptive families or special circumstances. When a child cries, for example, who comes running? Mom comes running. Yeah. When, when, when a whale comes out of the, the nursery, uh, as it sometimes does, and makes its way into uh, the sanctuary on a Sunday morning, what happens? 
Every one of us hear that wail that's coming from a child back there, but only one mom gets up out of her seat and heads for the nursery. That's subjective evidence, though. We can pretty much assume that that is the mom of that child, right? That's subjective proof or evidence. At the sixth grade band recital, when the fourth chair trombone player waves to the crowd, who waves back? One mom waves back. That's subjective evidence, but we can probably put that together, that that child and that mom go together. So there is objective and there are subjective proofs, and both are reliable. They're just different. And John does the same thing here. If you want to know who the child of God is and who isn't, there are objective and there are subjective indicators. All moms want their children to be absolutely sure and assured that uh, about their place in their family. They want them to rest in the love of their family securely. And God is no different in his relationship with you and me. He wants us to have no doubt, have no fear about where we stand with him. He wants us to be confident and sure. And we can be. We truly can be. On your note page, let's start then with a consideration of the objective proofs or or evidence overcoming doubt with objective proof and that's going to come out of verses 23 and 24 we're going to start there with the objective and then we'll come back and and talk about the subjective more uh, in verses 19 and following but let's start here and once again these verses read like this and this is his commandment that we believe in the name of his son jesus christ and love one another Just as he has commanded us, whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. 23 and 24. From the first day of our study of this amazing little epistle, we have been saying that you can always tell the real Christian from the unreal professor of Jesus in three very specific ways. By what they believe, by how they behave, and by how they love yes you are you are getting it we've been going over this so many times it's now become part of 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 your understanding of this letter and this is precisely what john says here in verses 23 and 24 there are three objective indicators of genuine salvation faith believe in the name of his son jesus christ love one another do what god says keep his commandments faith Love, obedience, the objective proofs of who's real and who is not. That's what John says. So let's take a quick look at each one of these in turn. First of all, faith, believing in Jesus alone. True salvation always begins with confession. Confession of faith in who? The person of Jesus Christ, right? You, you know this verse, Romans 10, 13. You probably have memorized it. If not, let's just all read it off the screen together, though. Can we do that? 10, 13 of Romans. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Confession. Salvation begins with confession. We must make that personal faith statement about who Jesus Christ will be in our lives, what he did on the cross, what he did at the empty tomb. This testimony of Scripture is our profession of faith in Christ. 
And the apostles would affirm this for sure. You remember the scene in Acts chapter 16? Paul and Silas are in prison. An earthquake has hit the hit, 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 hit Philippi and and all the doors in the prison, they just kind of blow off their hinges. And so all of the prisoners can escape if they want to. The Roman jailer is tasked with the responsibility of keeping the prisoners. And Roman policy says that if you're responsible for the prisoners and the prisoners escape, guess who dies? Well, you, the jailer, are going to pay for that with your life. And so the jailer sees all of the the, the, the cells are open, the doors are open, and, and he assumes that everybody has gone. And so he draws his sword to take his own life rather than have his superiors take it for him. We pick it up in verse, six, uh, verse 28 of chapter 16. Paul cried out with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And then he brought them out and he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. That's the first objective step. If anyone's going to have assurance of of a relationship with God, you've got to believe in Jesus. Faith or believing is what I have. Jesus is where I place that faith. Specifically, I believe that Jesus is sinless God in human flesh who, who came and he, he, he died for my sin on a cross. Purely by God's loving grace and mercy, he did that, not because of anything that I did or anything that merited his, his action towards me. He just wanted to do that for me because he loved me. And I appropriate Jesus into my life through faith. And he is my one and my only Savior. Can you say the same? Amen? Yeah. I determined to be his devoted follower for the rest of my life. I confess Jesus as my Savior. Believing in Jesus, it's God's non-negotiable requirement to be in a relationship with him. Without this, there is no salvation. Acts chapter 4, verse 12 comes to my mind. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. What name? The name of Jesus. There, there is only one name. God has not made many ways to reach him. There are not many avenues, many paths to God. We don't get to him. His name is, you can call him by different things, but we're all going to the same place. That's not the Bible's declaration. We frequently hear that put forward in our culture. Oh, you can get to God lots of different ways, but that's not what the Bible says. And so I must ask myself, is Jesus the sole object upon which my faith and my salvation hope rests? That's objective evidence that I belong to God and he belongs to me. And then in verse 23, a second objective proof that we can use to know and reassure our hearts is what? Love. Love for for one another. Love for others expressed through action. And that's really important. And this is his commandment, we read in verse 23, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. Now, we spent a whole morning, two mornings ago, we spent the whole morning talking about love as a proof of being real. 
If I could take you back up to verses that we have already been over, back up to verse 16 for a moment, do you recall these words? By this we know love, that he, that is Jesus, laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But, But if anyone has the world's good and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. And we shared these words together, this passage last time. Jesus proved the extent, the depth of his love for us by doing what? By dying for us, by dying in our place. Amazing, unearned, unmerited love that he made real through action. The Holy Spirit through John's pen would say to us that the authentic Christian has appropriated God's love into his life, her life, by faith. And the proof of that will be revealed as the love of God flows out of our life in tangible ways and touches other people's lives. And so there is this this vertical love that we have experienced which then makes its way out of our lives as a horizontal expression of love as well. And John would say, That is a proof of being real. This love creates a willing, sacrificial, self-giving for others, uh, especially others in the body of Christ, uh, expression to itself. If you flip your note page over, Jesus says, this is going to be the mark of one who really knows me. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples. If you have what? If you have love for each other if you have love for each other people are going to know that you belong to me and as verses 17 and 18 make crystal clear the kind of love that jesus has in mind here doesn't let us love in in general kind of fuzzy wordy ways it says that when we as professing followers of jesus have material resources and and we see the need of another does our heart open or does it does it close If it doesn't open, John asks, well, how does God's love abide in that heart? It can't. Love not in word, but in action, verse 17. The New Testament writer James must have read the same memo that John was reading when he writes the words in James 2, 14 to 17. You're familiar with these words. Listen again. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith Faith in God, faith in Jesus, but does not have works. Can that faith save him? The implied answer is no. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and be filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? And so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is what? It's dead. It's, it's not real, James would say. And John would not hesitate to take James's last sentence and say, faith by itself, if it does not have a working love associated with it, it's dead. It's not real. Love measured by action is an objective proof of our relationship with God. Is it real or is it not? When we give of ourselves and of our resources for others, it shows 
that there really is a vertical relationship going on here, and it expresses itself in a horizontal way as well. Such a love, John will say, if you have that, if you see that happening in your life, well, then you can dispel doubt and you can instill assurance into your life. You're real. This is a proof. And then there's a third objective proof of salvation that John presents in verse 24, and that proof is obedience. Obedience, doing what God has said in his word. Verse 24, whoever keeps his commandments abides in God, and God abides in him. Now, some take this verse and they yank it out of context, and they think that they hear John saying that, If I obey enough, if I do the rules good enough, then I'm saved. Now, is that what John is saying? No, you are readily shaking your heads. No, it is not what John is saying. But no small number are tripped up here and find support for a a salvation is kind of earned. My assurance for sure is earned if I do all the rules. That's where my assurance comes from, works-based assurance. And friends, this would be the last thing that John would ever want us to, to take away from these, this passage. It's not what he wants his readers to think. Obedience is never, ever the condition for our salvation. Are we all agreed on that? It is never the condition for our salvation. Obedience, however, is the objective proof that salvation is present. And there's a world of difference between those two thoughts. One writer puts it this way, doing what is characteristic to the realm of truth is a sign that we belong to that realm. Well, that's not rocket science. John would hardly agree with that statement. Back up in verse 10 of chapter 3, maybe you remember when John said this, by this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is what? Not of God. Not of God. That's the truth stated negatively. Verse 24, same chapter, is the same truth stated in the positive. Whoever abides in God is going to do what? Keep his commandments. If you belong to God, you are going to do that. You will do that. It's one evidence. It's a proof. If I'm in God, I'm going to obey. If I obey, then I am in God. One proves the other. In fact, check out this little picture there. It's on your, it's on your note page. We'll put it up on the screen for you as well. And, and what I did was I just took the liberty of, of drawing verses 23 and 24 in kind of a, a more visual way um, for us. Believe in Jesus alone. Love others through action and do what God says. Faith, love, obedience. You're going to always know the real from the fake, remember, by what you believe, by how you behave, by how you love. And so John would say that these all feed each other. They all flow into each other. They form kind of an assurance-producing triunity. I need all three to have the assurance that I know my God in a personal way saving way. I need all three. I must believe rightly in Jesus, my faith in him alone. I can love and I can obey, but if if I'm without faith or my faith is misplaced, 
I can have no assurance of my salvation. Or if I claim to believe in Jesus and I'm a diligent observer of God's law, his word, but I'm selfish and I'm cold-hearted and I'm unloving towards other people, I really shouldn't have any assurance of my salvation. And if I claim to believe in Jesus and I'm generous to a fault and I give everything I have away, but I have no concern for obeying God's word or wanting to please him, then I should have no assurance of my salvation. Any two without the third is essentially an oxymoron, isn't it? It really is. It is a tri-unity of proofs. So if I am humbly and objectively looking at my life and I, I know that my trust is in Jesus Christ alone and I want to obey him even though I know I can't do that perfectly and I love others with a self-giving love that goes from words to action, well, then there must be some supernatural, extraordinary thing happening in my life. Mine is a heart that is being transformed by God through faith in Jesus Christ. And it's manifesting itself in these tangible, observable truths or proofs. So what an amazing triad we have here. Faith in Jesus, love for others, doing what God says. Objective, observable, assuring to me that I belong to Jesus and Jesus belongs to me. Do you have that today? Do you have that? Now, having said all of that, you and I are not just objective evidence-consuming machines who have no feelings. We are emotional beings as well, creatures with, with feelings, feelings that, are, that aren't always that objective. Sometimes our feelings are quite unreliable, not dependable. And it is with our subjective feelings oftentimes that our assurance battles are being fought. It's with the feelings of our assurance inside, in our hearts. There we want to confidently feel that we are safely and securely in the embrace of God. Under His grace, truly saved. We want to feel that assurance. And so John knows this. And so he says, if we return back to verses 19 uh, and following, if we go back up, we take a look now at the more subjective side of our assurance. This is what he writes, verse 19. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. What John does here is he's going to pastor us through the much more subjective, emotional side of our, our, our salvation assurance, the feeling side of it. By this we shall know and reassure our what? Our heart before him. So this is heart knowing. This is, this is heart Confidence. This is the emotions of assurance much more than, than the objective evidences of it. And brothers and sisters, this is very often what Christians are wanting when they are filled with doubt and fear. They pray the sinner's prayer over and over and over and they raise their hand at, at every altar call because they want to feel their assurance. 
They want to feel saved. Now, maybe you can relate to this. I had one of the elderly ladies in our church family at second service says, oh, I wish I'd have heard this years ago. She'd grown past those need for the feelings part of it to be so prominent in her life. But she says, there was a time. There was a time. And maybe you can relate to that. Never feeling sure, absolutely assured that you're saved, really and truly, irrevocably saved. Why, to have that feeling of assurance would be so amazing, someone might say. You can't even imagine what that would be like to to feel what Scripture says you are safe and secure. To feel it. Oh, to be able to feel it. It's like John has a window into your own heart right now and he's portraying your longing exactly. I want to feel my salvation. Brother and sister, the key is verse 20. Verse 19 again, by this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. Verse 20, for whenever our heart condemns us. Did you see that? Whenever our feelings condemn us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. Whenever our heart condemns us. The objective evidence is there. We believe, we love, we obey, and still our heart condemns us. Saying that we're not saved because if we were saved, we wouldn't feel this way. Insecure and unsure. When the objective evidence tells us that we're saved and our heart says we're not or might not be, the Holy Spirit here in verse 20 is saying, Christian, you stop. You stop right there. God is greater than your heart. I wonder if for someone today... In this room, verse 20 might just become your favorite verse in all of Scripture. Because here's what it means. It means that you and I can be saved even when we don't feel saved. Because our confidence is not in our feelings, but in our God. Amen. And He knows. Even if we don't feel it. He knows. We're not saved because we feel saved, are we? Are you saved because you feel saved? We're saved because God says we're saved, right? God is my judge. My my feelings are not my judge. Whatever my heart may say on a given day, what God says carries the day. God is greater than our heart, John says. God's judgment is more reliable, more defining than my heart's judgment. But why then, Tim, do I feel this way? Why, why do I feel unsure and, and insecure? Surely that can't be right for me as a Christian. Why do I feel like that? Why does my heart condemn me like that? Well, you're right. It isn't how you should be. One huge reason I believe why genuine Christians struggle with assurance is that the, the, the longer we are a Christian and a serious growing Christian, the deeper our walk with God becomes, the more we mature, the more clearly we see the sin in our lives. How we fail God, how we, how we disappoint Jesus, how we 
miss the Holy Spirit's leading. The more mature we are as Christians, the more we realize how broken we really are. Right? That's how it works. And this is right where John has us, I believe, in verse 20. I mean, I think of the Apostle Paul who who called himself near the very end of his life, the very end of his life, the chief of what? Sinners. First, uh, First Timothy 1.15. He calls himself the chief sinner. This is the Apostle Paul. But he's been in Jesus for a long time, and, and the more he knows Jesus, the more he sees himself this way. Or Romans chapter 7. I mean, he writes about himself. Uh, and, and this is... Paul, the the writer of of 14 New Testament books and letters, and here's what he says. He says, For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I don't want to do, I keep on doing. Wretched man that I am. Now, does that sound like a great path to assurance? No, it doesn't. (laughs) But the deeper we go with Jesus, the more broken we discover that we are. It's like that old expression, the more you learn, the more you realize you don't know. Or like Mark Twain framed it, same idea, a little more humorously. He writes, when I was a boy of 14, my father was so ignorant, I could hardly stand to have the old man around. But when I got to be 21, I was astonished at how much he had learned in seven years. (laughs) Right? The older we get, the more we... We just see ourselves differently. The maturing Christian sees more and more how his nature is is prideful and selfish and self-exalting. Yes, a real Christian is being changed by believing and loving and by obeying. But like an onion, as the Holy Spirit peels back one layer and shows us our sin and we address that issue, well, then there's another layer. And then there's another and another as the Holy Spirit reveals more and more of us, I know I'm never going to get to the place where I will say in my heart, finally, Tim, you've arrived. Finally, you made it. You're perfect. Now go feel the assurance of God. Never going to happen. Ever. There are some genuine Christians who, who sadly never know a resting heart peace emotionally with God. Their hearts are always condemning them. And, 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 and to this, John says, God is greater than our heart. God is greater than your heart. What God stands and what he says is, believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. Love and obey as evidence, as proof of who you are. Your assurance of salvation must rest on the nature of God and not upon your feelings. They are unreliable. Who should get credit for it? I do not know. But someone dialed into the truth of 1 John 3 when they said, you must not live by, we must not live by our feelings, but by our what? By our knowings. By what we know. Feelings come after. Knowings are grounded in Scripture and in the character of God. Feelings come and go. Brothers and sisters, when feelings drive our sense of assurance before God, I have to think that it really betrays that our focus is on ourselves and not on Jesus. Would you agree with that? 
The more you look at me, the less saved I am going to feel. John says, get your focus off of your heart and what it's saying. Focus on God who knows everything about you and who is greater than you and believe him for what he has said about you. Charles Spurgeon, a great preacher of the past, once said concerning his own feelings of assurance before God. He says, I looked at Jesus and a dove of peace flew into my heart. I looked at the dove of peace and it flew away. When I rest my salvation on the promises of God and and believe in my heart that he is true to his word, I will feel peace and I will know an inward assurance. When I focus on feeling assurance, well, my assurance is going to sprout wings and fly away. Now, is John saying that feelings don't matter? He's not saying that. He's not saying that, that our hearts should be ignored or stuffed or buried or bottled up. He's not saying that at all. He's simply saying that our feelings must always be the servant of objective proofs. Not the other way around. Salvation's proofs. Faith in Jesus, love for one another, a desire to please God through obedience. Those things need to drive my feelings and not the other way around. As I observe the objective proof in my life, and I trust God for what he has said about those things, remember he's greater than my heart, then I can have confidence before God, John says. Confidence that I am real, and then I know and experience the feelings of assurance that my heart is longing for. Do you follow John here? You following his argument? Now, I'm going to wrap things up with an illustration and and I shared this at first service and said if the if this illustration flops you tell me and I won't share it at second service. And they said go ahead and share it. So I'm going to share it. Maybe this will just kind of help in a kind of an earthy way to get us to where John wants us to be this morning. I want you to imagine if you can. I want you to imagine that it's late February and we are all out at Lake Hemet, okay? A church family outing, all of us. Both services, we're out at Lake Hemet. We have had a terrific run of super cold weather, and Lake Hemet has frozen over. Okay, now you really have to use your imagination to get to that place, but that's what I want you to do. You imagine Lake Hemet frozen over. It's been so cold, and all of us have gone out to the lake, the whole church, even the oldest members amongst us have all gone out to Lake Hemet because others have made a a great sled run on a hill next to Lake Hemet, and, and it comes right down onto the shoreline, this sled run, and you just go down, and man, it's just beautiful. We've all gone out to enjoy that together. So on this particular run that you're taking on your sled, you get so much speed and you're going so fast that your sled shoots down to the bottom of the run and then it just keeps right on going and it shoots all the way out onto Lake Hemet and onto the ice and it just keeps going and going and going. You're way, way out there in the middle of the lake on your sled. And as you're out there, your friends start screaming, No, look out, the ice is thin. You're going to break through. Stop. You're listening now as the sled comes to a stop for cracking sounds. You slowly roll off the sled and you spread eagle on that ice face down. The last thing you want to do is die. 
at Lake Hammett. <laughs> right? And so you slowly start to inch your way back towards the shore on your belly. Every muscle is tense. You don't want to die at Lake Hammett. And then all of a sudden, you look over, and here comes the IBC church van. And it is filled with our teenagers, okay? Uh, And it starts driving out onto the ice. And Brandon's at the wheel, and he's leaning out the window with this crazy, wild-eyed look in his eye, and he's just screaming. And he's doing donuts all around you. He's, he's fishtailing all around you in the church van. And, and the kids are laughing and they're cheering. And, and this multi-ton van is racing around you, donutting and fishtailing. Now let me ask you, in that moment, would observing the church van and Brandon and the kids in that way out on the ice change your perspective about your situation? Huh? It would, wouldn't it? (laughs) About your own life and death prospects in that moment, would they not be revolutionized by that scene? The ice is thick, you would conclude. The ice is strong. If the ice can hold the van, then it can surely hold me, right? And you would stand up and you would start cheering and raising your arms and fist pumping the van and, and, and you would be starting to whistle blessed assurance, right? As you grab your sled and you just stomp back boldly to the shore. The objective evidence has reassured you that you are safe. And then that, that, that objective evidence has created a wonderful feeling of confidence within you. You, You're going to live. What John says here to us, brothers and sisters, is salvation's ice is super thick. God is greater than our hearts. God's grace is greater than our sin. We do not need to tremble on the ice. It is going to hold. And we know that it will hold because we believe and we love and we obey. And we have confidence in God because he says those are the things that save. You're real through your faith in Jesus. And because of that evidence, you have feelings of confidence in your God and assurance of your standing before Him. By this we shall know we are of the truth and reassure our heart. Let's live by what we know and then rest in what we feel. Amen? Let's pray together. What a treasure you have given to us today. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, Holy Spirit, Thank you for this this gem. And for some, maybe this is just going to be a glorious, very special passage of Scripture from, from this day forward. Because there is certainly within this room some who have not known the the assurance that you long for your children to have. To feel sure and, and secure. To feel. The feeling's been elusive. 
But our trust is not in our feelings, Heavenly Father. It's, it's in you. It's in you. How we thank you for that. How we thank you for verse 20. How we thank you for Jesus. Lord, if there be one in this room who has yet to give their life to you in simple saving faith, may today be the day and now be the time. And may you help us to help whoever that might be to step into a new eternal relationship with you. For the rest of us in this room, may we walk out of this building today with all of the joy, all of the emotion, all of the feeling of assurance that comes because we know who we believe, because we're loving well, and we're living your word. Make it so. For your glory, we ask it in Jesus' great name. Amen and amen.